Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 15. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you're, um, you're ever reaching out to us in that mercy, Lord. And even in the midst of correction and discipline, um, Father, those things come with the intent and the purpose of loving us, causing us to draw ourselves closer to you. That's the desire of your heart is that we would be closer to you. So when those times come of, of chastisement, Lord, in our lives as it has to Israel in our study in Isaiah, I pray, Father, that we'd be quick to hear and quick to be obedient, Lord, and run to you, not to anywhere else, Father. God, I do ask that you'd help me to uh, help us uh, tonight, help me to rightly divide your word as we study these chapters. Uh, teach us what you would want us to hear. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've all done it, right? We've all um, come to a, a circumstance or a situation in our life that was overwhelming or seemingly insurmountable when the water level was rising and, uh, and we were, thought we were near the end and we, and we reach out for help. And there's nothing wrong with reaching out for help. Um, but often the issue is we reach in the wrong direction. It's been said, and I, I haven't yet heard this, but I, I have heard of several pastors telling me that when they give somebody biblical counsel on what to do in a certain situation, the, the people will say, well, that's all well and good, but this is real life. <laughs> and... and in, in the, in the, to responding to biblical counsel. That, that's all, oh, I appreciate what the Bible would have to say, but this is real life. And when life presses in, it should be that we turn to God. But often, we turn to the world for help. That's not what God desires. But that's what was going on in Judah during the writing of Isaiah. That's what was happening is, is rather than Judah returning to their God, rather than Judah uh, once again placing their hope and their trust in Him, they were more apt to reach out to the people around them. God has declared His looming judgment on the nation because of their hypocrisy, right? That's what we read in chapters 1 through 5. That, that God was um, upset with them because while with their lips they said they praised God and that they were followers of Him, their, their hearts, their actions were very far from that. They would, they would go to temple on, on the Sabbath, but then the, the rest of the week they were heathens. And, and, and so um, they, God said, enough is enough. And when the devastation weighed heavy on them, God knew that the people of Judah would likely want to turn to the nations around them for help. The surrounding nations. God was going to use the nation of Assyria to level His judgment against Judah. Uh, he, that was the tool in, in God's hand to, to level this judgment against Judah. And it would be their natural inclination to reach to any of the other nations around them and form an alliance with that nation in an attempt to stand against Assyria. That's, that, was, that was what they were apt to do. So 
God in His providence in chapters 13 to 23 of the book of Isaiah is prophetically pronouncing judgment on all of the nations surrounding Judah. He's, he's leveling accusation against all of these 10, 11 countries that surround Judah because he knew that Judah's inclination would be to reach out to them. He's letting Judah know before any of this happens, he's letting Judah know that's not the way to turn because my judgment is coming against them as well. God wants them to turn to him as he wants us to turn to him when the waters rise in our lives. That's the lesson of tonight. I gave it to you up front. You can go to sleep now if you want. No, please don't. But uh, that, that, you know, that's, that's the idea. He wants us, when it all comes crashing down in our lives, to turn to Him. These judgments began in chapter 13 with the nation of Babylon, a, a rising, uh, well, a fledgling nation at the time. It was going to rise to power. Of course, you know, Babylon was probably the greatest single empire that ever lived, or, or empire under one ruler. So as we get into chapter 15, the next nation up is the nation of Moab. So it says in Isaiah chapter 15, verse 1, the burden against Moab, <laughs> because in the night of Ar, oh, I'm sorry, because in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Ker of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. So let's pause here for just a second, and let's talk about who Moab is. I got these, these notes from David Guzik, but this was a great synopsis, so I'm just going to read what he wrote. I don't think I could have done a better job. So, the founder of the people of Moab was the son born of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. Okay, so the Moabites... Where, where Moab was the son of the relationship. You remember when, when Lot left Sodom and Gomorrah, his two daughters and Lot are living in a cave, and, and his daughters get Lot drunk, and then they sleep with him uh, one each night, and they both get pregnant. Well, one of the sons born of that incestuous relationship is Moab. Okay? Um, and that's in Genesis chapter 19. Uh, the Moabites settled in the plains to the southeast of Israel in what is modern-day Jordan. Okay, so that's where that's the region we're talking about. We're talking about if you were to look on the map, Jordan would be where we're looking. At times, the Moabites were great enemies of Israel. It was Balak, the king of Moab, who hired Balaam the prophet, hoping that he could curse Israel. That's Numbers chapters uh, twenty-two to twenty-five. It was Eglon king of Moab, who oppressed Israel in the days of the judges, in Judges chapter 3. Uh, during the time of Saul and David, Israel established a firm control over Moab, but later kings of Israel were not always able to keep them under Israel's dominance. At the same time, the, there was a, a, a Moabite connection with Israel. First, they're related to Israel because Lot was Abraham's nephew. And because of this, God told Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 9, that they were not to destroy Moab and to take their land. As well, David, Israel's greatest king, was one quarter Moabite, right? His paternal grandmother was Ruth, the Moabitess. And so 
you know, David is, is one quarter Moabite. Um, his paternal grandmother Ruth was from Moab, and David entrusted his father and mother to the protection of the king of Moab when he was a fugitive from Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 22. So for these reasons, there's a great deal of sadness and empathy on Isaiah's part as he describes the coming judgment from Moab. Okay, so as we read through this, this, this um, decree that's going forth to the nation of Moab, you are going to get the sense that Isaiah is saddened by having to share this news. And the, the way he opens it back in verse 1, uh, in the night Ar of Moab is laid waste and destroyed, because in the night Ker of Moab is laid waste and destroyed. Those are the two main cities in the region of Moab, and God says that they will fall in one night, and that's actually what happened. So it says in verse 2, He, Moab, has gone up to the temple of Dibon, to the high places to weep. Moab will wail over Nebo and over Mediba. On all their heads will be baldness, and every beard will be cut off. Those are signs of mourning, that they would shave their heads, that they would cut their beards off, was a sign of Moab. But in the midst of their mourning, where did they go? What does that verse tell us? They went up to the high places. They went to the, te- the temple. They turned to their false gods rather than turning their hearts to the true God. In verse 3, it says, in their streets, they will clothe themselves with sackcloth, another sign of mourning. On the tops of their houses and in their streets, everyone will wail, weeping bitterly. Heshbon and Elilah, or something, will cry out. Their voice shall be heard as far as Jahaz, Therefore, the armed soldiers of Moab will cry out. His life will be burdensome to him. This devastation that's coming against them at the hand of God is going to be so strong against Moab that everyone's going to be crying. Imagine, you know, I I was thinking about this. Imagine somebody invading your house and taking your family hostage. Imagine the the pain, the sorrow, the, the fear that would cause in your life. And the response that would happen is, is wailing, it's weeping, it's, it's crying. That's, that would be the natural response. And that's what he's saying. As this invasion of Assyria comes into Moab, that's what's going to happen. So much so, it's going to be so complete that even the bravest, the most valiant of men, the soldiers, are going to cry out. He says in verse 5, My heart will cry out for Moab, his fugitives, shall flee to Zoar like a three-year-old heifer. That would be a, a cow that hadn't yet been yoked. For by the ascent of Luhith, they will go up with weeping. For in the way of name, they will raise up a cry of, dis- of destruction. For the waters of Nimrim will all be desolate. For the, gra- sorry, for the green grass has withered away. The grass fails there is nothing green. How complete will this destruction be? Everything's going to be laid to waste. Everything's going to go bad. Judah may have been looking to Moab because the grass was greener on the other side, but God says that's going to change. Even the grass will fail. It will have withered away. And that's a good principle for you and I. Something we can take out of tonight's study. If, if you want something to put on your next coffee mug... <laughs> How about this? Spend less time looking for greener grass elsewhere and start watering the grass where you are. Spend less time looking for greener grass elsewhere and start watering the grass where you are. 
And that's, that's God's heart for, for, for Moab even. Turn to me. Get, get, get your relationship right. Spend time. Invest time in me. Stop looking elsewhere. Verse 7. Therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they will carry away to the brook of the willows. Even their treasure will be gone. For the cry has gone all around the borders of Moab. It's wailing to Eglim and it's wailing to Be'er Elim. For the waters of Dimon will be full of blood because I will bring more upon Dimon, lions upon him who escapes from Moab and on the remnant of the land. It's a devastating destruction that fills rivers with blood. That's a pretty intense scene. When you go to the river to wash your hands in the midst of the battle and it's, you can't tell if it's water or blood. That's pretty intense when it gets that bad. And for any that had escaped, there were lions waiting. You escaped the nation of, Israel, of Assyria coming against you? No problem. You escape into the lion's mouth. <laughs> God had it covered. There, there weren't, there was, God's plan was complete. There was no escape from this his hand. And yet, they have an option. Even Moab didn't have to walk through this. God's going to now give them the prescription that if they were to just obey this, if they were just to follow this, they would, they would have averted God's hand in this. It says in 16.1, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah to the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land. The idea behind that is that Moab should resume their bringing of tribute to Jerusalem, thereby submitting themselves to God again. That kind of tribute was uh, described in 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Mesha, the king of Moab, once paid tribute to Israel. And they stopped doing that when King Ahab of Israel died. And here Isaiah is counseling Moab to resume this payment of tribute. That's what God is saying, that if, if you submit yourself once again to the nation of Israel, things could go well. And this is how it's going to look in verse 2. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. How helpless is Moab going to be like a bird thrown out of the nest? Fragile, broken. Moab by no means was a strong country. They were rather weak. So the advice is for Moab to return and submit itself to Judah. Now it's going to get interesting in verse 3. The table's going to turn, and the counsel will be for Moab to care for the remnant coming out of Judah. So, so the first couple of verses, it's Moab, submit yourself to Judah. And then the, the next few verses, it's going to be Moab, take care of the remnant of Judah. It's, it's, you, you take care of each other is the, almost the idea. It says in verse 3, take counsel, execute judgment, Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you. That would be Judah running. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. 
Okay, some clues we get here. First of all, it says there in verse 4, at this time that Moab is being asked to care for the remnant of Judah, during that time, it says, for the extortioner is at an end and devastation ceases. What is the time that devastation ceases? It's at the end of the age, right? That's when, when all of devastation will cease is at the end of the age. It's during that tribulation period, at the end of the tribulation period, when God begins, Christ begins His millennial reign, that's when devastation will cease. And so that's the timeline we're speaking of here. It says in verse 5, In mercy the throne will be established, and one, capital O, will sit on it in truth, in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and and hastening righteousness. So this is speaking of Christ in his millennial reign. So just just to make sure we all have it, the time that God is asking for Moab to care for the outcasts is just prior to the establishment of the millennial reign. We're still talking future to our time, future to 2015. This has yet to happen that Moab will take care of of the nation of, of Judah. It's got to be during the tribulation period, the seven-year period. We know that there's a time coming when a man is going to make peace in the Middle East. That man is going to turn out to be the Antichrist, and he will declare that, or he will declare himself to be God at the three-and-a-half-year point, halfway through the tribulation period. He will go into the, the temple in Jerusalem and declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped. And it's at that point that the, the, the veil the, that is blinding the nation of Israel will be removed, their eyes will be opened, and they will understand that they, who they thought was their Messiah, this man that had made peace, is in fact not the Messiah, and that they had missed the Messiah in Jesus. All that's going to happen at the three and a half year mark, right? In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place... Whoever reads, let him understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That's important for us to understand um, as we we consider these things. We're going to couple that with what John says in the book of Revelation. So let's pause in Isaiah for just a second. Flip to Revelation chapter 12. We're just going to read through it real briefly to pick up a couple key understandings. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a garland of twelve stars. This is speaking of the nation of Israel. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The child born, of course, being the Messiah. The dragon, of course, being our adversary, the devil. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Remember, the woman is the nation of Israel, so this is a clue. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared 
by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days, which is uh, three and a half years. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who, was, who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the, and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that the time is short. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman who was, but the woman, here's our next clue, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she may fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So time, times, and half a time, that's three and a half years, same as the 1260 days. And she was given wings that she might fly into the wilderness and so now couple that, tie that all together with what Moab or what God is telling Moab in Isaiah chapter 16. And we know of a place in Jordan that is known as Petra. Now I have yet to get over there and hope to one day. Um, Horizon Indy, Bill uh, Goodrich left today for Israel. And uh, I was like, oh man, but uh, hopefully one day I'll get over there. But there, we know that in Jordan there's this natural place that God has created that is a natural defense. It's called the, the, the rocks of Petra. It's, it's in the, the mountainous region, and it's this um, naturally protected place. There's only one way in and one way out, and, it, and the way in is at certain points is so narrow that two horses couldn't stand side by side. And it's this natural place of protection that we believe God has created so that when the persecution comes against the nation of Israel, as declared in the book of Revelation, that, that they're going to flee, the remnant is going to flee, and, and Moab is going to allow them to come in and to protect them as commanded in the, in the declaration in Isaiah chapter 16. God will, or Moab will shelter them in the rock, the, uh, the place that will, the earth will open its mouth. So, a little insight there. All right, so now back to Isaiah chapter 16. In verse 6 it says, We've heard the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath, but his lies shall not be so. This is the reason that God is coming against Moab. Something to note for all of us, pride is not a product of size or power. right? Babylon was proud. Assyria was proud, but so was Moab. And Moab was not big. It was not powerful. Size is not a product of power, or I'm sorry, pride is not a product of size or power. Pride is the opposite of humility. And humility is aligning ourselves with what God says about ourselves and what God says about himself. And, and Moab was not doing that. Therefore, Moab shall wail for Moab. Everyone shall wail 
For the foundations of Ker, Hereseth, you shall mourn. Surely they are stricken. For the fields of Heshbon, I anguish, <laughs> or languish, sorry, that's an L, huh? For the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibma, the Lord of the nations, have broken down its choice plants, which have reached to Jazer and wandered through the wilderness. Her branches are stretched out. They are gone over the sea. Therefore, I will bewail the vine of Sibma with a weeping of Jazer. I will drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliath, for battle cries have fallen over your summer fruits and your harvest. One of the pride, the things that Moab took great pride in was its lushness. It was a great land for vegetation growth. And one of the things that they grew well was grapes for wine. And so they were particularly proud of their vineyards and whatnot. And, and God is saying, I'm even going to go come against those things. It says in verse 10, gladness is taken away and joy from the plentiful field. In the vineyards, there'll be no singing, nor will there be shouting. No treaders will tread out wine in the presses. I have made their shouting cease. Therefore, my heart shall resound like a harp for Moab, my inner being for Ker Harry's. Harry's. That's Isaiah now saying in verse 11 that his heart goes out to Moab. He's broken over having to deliver this message to them. And it shall come to pass when it is seen that Moab is weary on the high place, that he will come to his sanctuary to pray, but he will not prevail. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning Moab since that time. But now the Lord has spoken saying, within three years, as the years of a hired man, the glory of Moab will be despised and with all that great multitude and the remnant will be very small and feeble. So God is setting a timeline in regard to the judgment against Moab. He's warning Judah, don't turn to Moab because within this set time, these three years, they're going to fall. So in chapter 17, now he's going to turn to Syria and to Israel, the nation of Israel to the north. Remember, there was a, a division between Israel and Judah. So in 17.1, the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. Damascus was the primary city in the nation of Syria. Recognize there's a difference between Assyria and Syria. Assyria is the, the kingdom that God is using to level all of this destruction. Syria is one of the nations that is going to be laid waste in which Damascus will be laid in a ruinous heap. And that, Damascus at one point was a, a great and uh, powerful city. And after the, the Assyrians came in, it was laid into a ruinous heap. It is interesting to note, Damascus still survives today. Damascus is actually the oldest city in the world. Oldest, sorry, the oldest continuous city in the world. It's still a city that people live in today. It's never been the power that it was prior to the Assyrians come in, but it is, it is still uh, plays a major part in future prophecies. He says Damascus was a primary city in or, sorry, Damascus is a primary city in Syria. It's kind of like if if Isaiah had leveled a burden against Washington, D.C. It wouldn't just be for Washington, D.C. It would be speaking to our whole nation. That's what, what's happening here in chapter 17. It says in verse 2, The cities of Aor are forsaken. They will, be, uh, they will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. How bad is the, are the cities going to be? 
flocks of sheep are going to hang out there and there ain't going to be nothing to make them afraid. That's, that's how devastated and how uh, far the ruin will go. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. So this, this is also speaking against the city of, or the, the, nation, the region of Ephraim. Ephraim is the primary region of Israel. So God is, is leveling his accusation against them as well. In that day, it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. It shall be as when the harvester gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers the head of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it, like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. God's reminding them who's in control, right? It says um, at the end of verse 6 there, says the Lord God of Israel. He's like, I'm your God, and I'm in control of this situation. And though His judgment is going to be strong and vast, there is that great word at the beginning of verse 6, yet, but, hold on. Yes, I am leveling all of this, but with God there is always hope. A remnant will remain. There will be two or three olive, olives at the top of the uppermost bough. There will be four or five in, in its most fruitful branches. I, God has a plan that the remnant will remain. Remember, God has to keep the nation of Judah continuous or going. The, the bloodlines of Judah need to continue on because Messiah has yet to come. And David was promised that Messiah would reign in his bloodline. Finishing up, it says in verse 7, in that day, a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. And that's what God wants. That's what he wants of you and I as well, that we would look to our maker, that our heart would be knit to his heart, that he would be our source, that he would be our hope in trial, that he would be the one that we turn to when things get hard. He will not look to the altars, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. In that day, his strong cities will be as for a forsaken bow and a bow and an uppermost branch. They will which they left because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold. Therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. So God is telling them what they're going to do, even in the midst of his wooing them back and trying to get them to turn to him. He's telling them, you're going to turn to the foreign rather than to the natural. You'll it says there in verse 10, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. They would rather turn to the world than back to God. In that day, or in the day, you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish, but the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. So introducing a foreign seed may get you through the trial, but the fruit will be far from what, what it could have been had we turned to God. That's the, the concept behind all of that. It, it may, you may cause your plant to grow, but in the end, you're going to heap a harvest of ruins. It would have been far better had they turned, had we turned back to God. 
Woe to the multitude of many peoples who make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that, making a rushing, that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Imagine that, you know, the tumbleweed in front of a tornado. Then behold, at eventide, trouble, and before the morning, he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. We'll stop there for this evening. And the theme throughout all three chapters, 15, 16, and 17, as God brings this levelment, a leveled accusation against Moab and against um, or Syria and um, Ephraim or, or Israel, is this, that God in His mercy and His love for the apple of His eye, the nation of Israel, Judah in particular, He's warning them prior to the judgment even happening that there is no other escape, there is no other way to turn, there is no other place to run other than to Him. And that's what He wants. Just turn back to me. You and I need to hear that too. Whether you're in the midst of a trial right now, not knowing which way to turn, or you know that time is coming, because if you're not in one now, guess what? There's one lined up for you. When, when those days come upon us, our inclination, like the nation of Judah, is to turn to our parents, or turn to our family, or turn to our neighbor, or turn to our friends, or turn to anything but God. And God is saying, no, no, Judah, no, child of God, let me be the first button you push, not the break in case of emergency, right? God is, he, he desires that intimate relationship with you and I so that our natural inclination, the, the, we've trained ourselves in a way that when those difficult things arise, the first place we go is to his throne. And that, that denotes a true intimacy with God. Is that when, when it all breaks loose, when it all hits the fan, that the first place we run is to Him. That's His heart. That's what He wants. And that's the wise thing for us to do anyway, right? He has all the resources. <laughs> Not the nations around us. Alright, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you that in your ever-present love for us, you're always reaching and you're always wooing us. And Lord, for all the times that we've faltered, for all the times that we've sought to, to appease our appetite or our sense of peace or chased after hope that was of a foreign seed, Lord, forgive us. And we thank you for the forgiveness that is offered to us through Jesus Christ, your Son, and the sacrifice that he made. Thank you, Lord, that despite their foolishness, there was always a remnant, uh, always the availability of, of hope to the nation of Judah. And you have that same hope available to us tonight. Lord, for anybody feeling hopeless or desperate tonight, I pray that they would see that their eyes would be opened, that you are waiting for them to run into your arms. 
I pray, Father, that for the next time, the next difficulty, the next trial that arises, that our hearts would not look to the world around us, but that we would come to the throne of grace and recognize that you hold all things in the palm of your hand and that you love us and care for us and you want us to come to you. Teach us your ways, O oh God. May these principles reside on our minds and on our hearts. As we go from this place, we ask your seal of protection over us. Father, be the shield about us. We pray against the fiery darts of the enemy. We pray against his works and effects. We ask, Lord, that our eyes would be fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you, Lord. Just pray that we would live for you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen. 